So I found out yesterday afternoon that I'd be preaching this morning. Um, Some of you are saying, oh good, that means a shorter sermon. Actually, it could mean a longer sermon. When you hear preachers that go on and on and on and on and on and on, it's because they haven't figured out how to end their sermon, so they just keep they just keep talking. I hope I can do better better than that. Um, because we have been kind of in a flow of talking about these um, really major figures, trying to get a handle on the the larger picture of, of God's purpose and plan as you go through the Bible. It's a great encouragement to me, actually, to know that you're also doing this study in your home groups. In fact, I think it was last week, am I correct, that you actually talked about Abraham together? And am I on track? How many of you guys are in home groups? Let me... Wow, look at this. This is neat. Both, I think it's wonderful to see how many of you are in home groups, but also how many of you could be in home groups. Because, in fact, that really is the heart of uh, what liberty is all about. If you're trying to figure out how do I get to know people, how do I get more involved, uh, that's, the, that's the channel. And just go to the website and uh, click on, and kind of Rachel will help you, help you from there to get, to get involved. But you... This week are already kind of primed, if you were in home group, to talk about Abraham. This coming week, you're going to be looking at uh, the Exodus, which is great because I'm not going to talk about the Exodus next week. I'm going to talk about what you're, ta- what you're going to study the following week, which is Moses, and in a particular way, how he relates to the Ten Commandments. So we're kind of on, you know, tracking together on this. And, uh, and, and thinking all together, so that's good. The main story of the Bible, and this is what I hope you appreciate, because, again, some of you are brand new, I realize, to the whole Bible thing and church thing and Christian things, and you're wondering, where in the world do I get started? And I think I said last week, if you're absolutely a beginner, and that's where all of us have to start, so don't apologize for being a beginner, but if you're a beginner, the place to begin is Jesus. That's later in the story, I know. But just start reading the Gospel of Mark and get acquainted with Jesus. But the more you read about Jesus, the more you find out he talks about people like Moses and Abraham. And and so you you say, well, if I'm going to get to know Jesus, I need to know more about these other folks as well. So uh, this is not just kind of abstract history. When we talk about Abraham, we're talking about one of your spiritual ancestors, somebody who laid a foundation for you in your walk with Christ. So I hope that you are uh, eager and willing to, to learn more. Well, my first thought, actually, when I knew I would be preaching was, for some reason, it popped in my head a statement I heard from Dr. James Boyce. If that's not a, a familiar name to you, uh, James Boyce was the pastor of Wonderful 10th Presbyterian Church, which is just really a few blocks from here at uh, 17th and Spruce here in the city. If there's an anchor church that I believe sort of holds the whole body of Christ together, uh, it would be 10th Presbyterian 
church, a wonderful congregation. I'm not trying to tell you to leave Liberty. Uh, in fact, a lot of you I know have come here from tents, either because they've encouraged you to come here or because you wanted to kind of a little different uh, flavor. Nevertheless, James Boyce was there for 30-some years. And I don't know how this stuck in my mind of all the different things he said, but he asked the question, he said, of all the people in the Bible next to Jesus, who is the most important person? And, uh, you know, you can toss around different names. His answer, as you can well imagine, given, given the topic this morning, his answer was Abraham. So again, I say, I hope you want to know more about, about this guy. As I looked at the passage yesterday afternoon, three sort of basic thoughts kind of jumped out of me. One is biography, just a little snapshot of what, of this man, Abraham. Um, and again, either for those of you who are brand new to Abraham or who are kind of, and I heard somebody in one of our in covenant interviews this week say, you know, I've, I've grown up with these Bible stories, but they're just sort of all these miscellaneous stories. Now suddenly I'm beginning to see a, a flow to them. So you'll see Abraham in a new light. So we'll talk about his biography. Then we'll talk about his offspring. And thirdly, this whole idea of covenant, which becomes very prominent with Abraham. Okay, biography. Um, it, the passage started that uh, Chelsea read to you a few moments ago with verse 27 of chapter 11. Now, there's, I'm, I've been always used to pronouncing the man's name Terah. Um, so it's a little different than hers, but it's obviously the same word. But if you were with us last week, you know that uh, I said after the creation and fall in Genesis, every section of Genesis begins with this phrase, now these are the generations, and then it lists the individuals. These are the generations of Adam. And it really talked about Adam's heritage, which came through the line of Seth. That took you to Noah, and then you saw the phrase, these are the generations of Noah, and it talked about his children. He had three sons. And so the next, uh, in fact, uh, chapter 11, verse 10 says, these are the generations of Shem. Those, that was one of the sons of Noah. What the Bible is doing from the very beginning is saying that there is coming an offspring of Adam who will crush the serpent who has brought this curse upon the world. And so, I think even more fascinating to me than ever as I've been working on this study to see how carefully, right from the beginning, it's not just looking back, beginning with Jesus and saying, oh yeah, by the way, look at his heritage. Even at this point, the Holy Spirit is guiding the Bible, is making sure that we keep track of how the line is being passed from generation to generation. It's sort of tedious to us to read it, but it's terribly important, maybe the most important thing that's going on. And so Terah is uh, now born. He's one of the sons of uh, Shem. He had three sons, Abram, whose, later, whose name is later Abraham, it's the same, same person, Nahor and Haran, who in turn fathered Lot, who plays into the story later on. 
Uh, Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, Ur of the Chaldees. Now, really, what we talked about last week in the prologue, which is really a whole sweep of history from creation up to the time of Abraham, how many thousands of years that encompassed, we really don't know. But it was trying to give, give us just a, the bridge for how you got from creation and fall to now when the story really begins, which is with this man Abraham. And uh, we really now connect in a much more direct way with what we think of as verifiable history. I don't mean to say the other part of it wasn't history, but it covered so much territory. But if you want to think of history, think of the year 2000 for Abraham. And the city of Ur is still in ruins. It's been been excavated. You can't get to it these days because it's right in the middle of Iraq. But it's along the Euphrates River. And you can trace on a map how uh, Abram and his family, it was Tira, it says, took his family. I don't know if it was Abraham bugging his family to go with him or whether Tira was part of this calling of God. We don't know. But they moved up what we call today the Fertile Crescent and ended up in the city, the same name as his son's name, Haran, which is up near the border of Turkey and Syria today. From there, Abraham simply comes down, sort of scouts out the territory that he thinks God is giving him, makes these several stops that were just read in the scripture lesson. By the way, as I was working on this, I remembered back just a few years when Sandy and I read a book that I would commend to you if you really want to pursue this a little bit more. It's a book called Walking the Bible by an author named Bruce Feeler, F-E-I-L-E-R. Feeler starts out in the book identifying himself as a nominal Jew. Um, he He was an author, and he said, I kept encountering as I was preparing things to write more and more references to Abraham and Moses and all these various biblical references. I knew they were all myths, but I thought, you know what, if I'm going to be a serious writer, I owe it to myself and the fact that I do have these Jewish roots that I better go back and at least do an honest look at all of these various places that are mentioned. And so he embarked on just a personal journey of kind of an investigative reporter walking the Bible, that is going back and, and going back to these places that uh, he found mentioned in the Bible. I wish I could tell you in the end it made him a Christian, but it did actually change him spiritually, in which as, again, uh, one who didn't believe the stuff to begin with, he, he traced out all of these different events mentioned in the life of Abraham and Moses and so forth, and he said, he said, I don't know what else you can say, but he said, the people who wrote this book knew exactly what they were talking about. They've been to these places. These are real places. This is for real. And, it, and again, he said, I have to take this seriously, and I have to begin to look more carefully at this stuff that I so casually just dismissed as myth. And uh, so if you're kind of a... Well, I, Sandy and I loved it just because we... He did such a good job. He's an excellent writer. But if you're also kind of of the skeptical uh, mode, this is a book I'd encourage you to read. It's just one who still wasn't a believer. But he said, I've got to take this seriously. And out of it, he began drawing 
spiritual lessons, which, of course, is ultimately where you want to go with this. Okay, so Abraham, anyway, ends up actually going all the way to Egypt. Uh, Then he returns, and uh, this is stuff you can read about when you have a chance. Uh, Settles in the land of Canaan, surrounded by these uh, uh, pagans, uh, knowing that that one day this is all going to be his or his heritage, his seed. He separates from Lot, and you end up with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, uh, Abraham has to go to war to rescue Lot, and out of this he meets the king of Salem. This is a strange kind of an incident. His name is Melchizedek. But he's called the king of Salem. Salem is the same as Jerusalem. This, This just, again, fascinates me. Jerusalem was a holy city. When we talk about David in a few weeks, that's going to be the center point, of course, now the life of Israel. But long before David got to Jerusalem, it was a holy city. And this man who sort of appears out of nowhere named Melchizedek shows up and Abraham worships him and uh, honors him. And from there, the story uh, goes on of Abraham. um, He gets really serious, which I'll come back to in just a moment, about having a son. I mean, he says, basically, Lord, you're making all these wonderful promises about what's going to happen to succeeding generations, and I don't even have a kid yet. And so this really becomes the center point of Abraham's struggle, and he figures he'll sort of do it himself, actually, since the Lord hasn't gotten around to giving him a son. And so through the the maid of his wife, Sarah, and it's her suggestion, uh, her, her name, this maid's name is Hagar, and he has a son named Ishmael. But you can read about that. But by the way, if you have a Muslim neighbor, friend, co-worker, and you want to start a conversation, this is a great place to start. Saying, you know, pastor on Sunday morning said I should ask you about Ishmael. Because what you find is that our Muslim friends really start in the sense of the same place we do with Abraham, but then they go off the track of Ishmael. Whereas we follow the son of that eventually was given to Abraham named Isaac. And the story of Abraham then being told to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Um, uh, eventually Isaac gets a wife named Rebecca. Actually, I'm obviously giving you the quick version. Uh, Sarah dies and about, I love this, it's sort of tucked away, but about age 130, Abraham remarries and has six more kids. Yeah. No, I'm not threatening anything, dear. Don't worry. <laughs> we, we, we have our quiver full. But I, anyway, I just thought that was kind of neat. And then the story in the rest of the book of Genesis, uh, Isaac has the twins, Esau and Jacob. Um, I mean, all these are incredibly human interest kind of things. Sibling rivalry and Parents playing one child off against another and the the kind of the evil things people do to each other and so forth. But out of it, God's plan continues. And the line is passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, who then has 12 children or 12 sons. He has many more children, but those become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the particular tribe of Israel that you're supposed to pay attention to is the tribe of Judah. And Genesis ends up in... Uh, the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel end up 
down in Egypt. That's the end of the book of Genesis, and I'll stop there. And we'll pick it up next week. Because I want to come back and talk for a few minutes then about this whole question of offspring. Look at the text, if you will, starting in chapter 12, and let me read those verses once again. Now the Lord had said to Abram, and you can quote it this way, the Lord had said to Abram, which again may mean that the call really came to Abram, and he convinced his father that he should, he should make the move. We, uh, we don't know that. But nevertheless, the, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, I get this, because here's really one of the most significant statements in the Bible of unfolding the, the whole plan of God starting with Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Think about it for a moment. We've studied creation, in which God said it's all very good. And then the fall, and everything's downhill from there. And so if there's one word that would carry us through up until this point, it's the word curse, or darkness, or sin. And suddenly what becomes prominent is the word blessing. You will be blessed, Abraham. And a blessing will come through you to all the nations of the earth. So very clearly, this is the turnaround point. From the, from the world going descending down into with darkness, deeper and deeper and deeper, more and more destructive. Chapter 11 begins with the story of the Tower of Babel, where uh, the people were determined, we're not going to let God wipe us out again with the flood. We're going to build something tall enough that we will be able to, for ourselves. Now, forget the fact that God himself had said, I won't send a flood again. That's not good enough. We don't need your word, God. We'll take care of ourselves. And in fact, God kind of deepened their despair in their curse and scattered the nations over the face of the earth. Well, now things turn around, and the dominant word is blessing instead of curse. One of the books that Duane has recommended to you as a, as a supplementary reading is this book called The Drama of Scripture. I really would encourage you to pick this up when you have a chance. I, I found... It's by Bartholomew and Goheen. But I found this quote that I thought would be worthwhile just to kind of get a hold of this importance of, of, of where we are in, in the unfolding of God's plan. The promises to Abraham renew the vision for humanity set out in Genesis 1 and 2. He, like Noah before him, is a second Adam figure. Adam was given the Garden of Eden, 
Abraham is promised the land of Canaan. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham is promised descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. God walked with Adam in Eden. Abraham was told to walk before God. In this way, the advent of Abraham is seen as the answer to the problem set out in Genesis 1 through 11. Through him, all families of the earth will be blessed. Problem is, while Abraham personally will be blessed, the real blessing comes in succeeding generations. And Abraham doesn't have any kids. And he's now 85, 90 years old. And so the Lord comes to him, and if you're following in your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 15. Because here's where they get down to business. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. One of the things you could do in those days was let your your chief steward become your heir. So he offers Eliezer of Damascus. But the, behold, verse, uh, uh, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if that text sounds familiar, it should. This is actually picked up and quoted in the book of Romans as a demonstration that the only way of salvation has always been by faith. It's true for Abraham just as much as it's true for us. The other part of this means really that the heirs of Abraham, while in a physical sense are Jewish people, in a spiritual sense, we are the heirs of Abraham. We who come by faith. We who accept God's promises and trust that, in, in our case, Jesus died on the cross. None of us have seen that, but we believe that. God said, I will accept you as righteous in my sight. Not because you are righteous, but because Jesus is righteous and he went to the cross on your behalf. Will you believe that? When we say yes, we are in the line of Abraham. We stand with him. So who is the offspring of Abraham? In the ultimate sense, we are. And this is a very, very important theme of the New Testament that we need to get. And so here in chapter 15, God then verified his promise to Abraham by entering into a covenant. Now that's the third thing I, I said I wanted to call to your attention this morning. And again, if you, if you haven't kind of gotten it yet, you really need to get a hold of this idea of covenant because it's, again, one of the most fundamental themes of the Scripture. 
These, these same guys who wrote this book, when they introduced the Bible, they used an, an illustration that I really liked because they talk about cathedral. Now, I'm a cathedral lover, i got to admit. Some of you know we had six months in England just before we started uh, our, our ministry here at uh, Liberty. And uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go to these marvelous cathedrals that you'll find in all over England, all over Europe. And uh, But what these guys explained was that you can kind of go into a cathedral by all sorts of different ways. And they're always fascinating. I, I used to, at first, would go into these cathedrals and say, okay, yeah, good, that's nice, been there, done that, back on the tour bus, and off we go. And, you know, you've seen one, you've seen them all. But I began to realize the longer you stayed in the cathedral, the more stories you began to pick up, the more, the more fascinating it became. But even though you could go into the cathedral, kind of any door you wanted, the architect who designed the cathedral intended for you to go in a particular door in order that as you walked in, you got that wow. You suddenly saw the whole thing. And you were blown away. And you really, the whole point was, of course, you're just sucked up into the glory of God. That's the, that's the ultimate desire of the cathedral builders. So they say, what is the front door of the Bible? I mean, you can start reading in the Psalms. You can start reading in the Gospels. You can start reading wherever you want. And it's all going to be wonderful. But where's the wow? What's going to grab you to see the beauty and the magnificence of it all? But what they say is the front door of the Bible, it's really a double door. The front door of the Bible is what they call kingdom and covenant. I hope these two words kind of get a hold of you. Kingdom is this plan that we've talked about. God's going to rule this earth once again. We've already prayed for that, haven't we? We said what? Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Thy will be done on earth, even as it is already done in heaven. That's what we're praying for every time we pray that Lord's Prayer. Jesus said this is the centerpiece of what we pray for, that there will come the day when God, who is the king, who is the ruler, will in fact actually be experienced as the ruler here on the earth. And the king who's come to make sure that happens is Jesus. That's the, that's the big story, folks. We always tend to think of, what, you know, what's in it for me? How does it relate to me? Okay, you get to that, but the big story is the kingdom. And this is the whole message of Jesus, wasn't it? Repent, the kingdom is here. Well, how does God actually bring the kingdom sort of step by step? He does it by way of covenants. God himself actually obligates himself to people like you and me. Over and over and over. And we'll see the covenant. We've already seen it with Noah. Now we see a covenant with Abraham. And he seals it with blood. There's a, there's a sacrifice of blood that seals the covenant. And it's always God coming. This is the amazing thing. When you see the covenants in the Bible, it is not like a contract. You know, if you go out and buy a car... You sign a contract, and the contract is, I will give you a car if you will give me 
X dollars a month. Now, the deal is, of course, if you don't give me X dollars a month, I get the car back. You do your part, and I'll do my part. Now, don't think of God making a contract like that. It's always God says, I will do this for you. Okay? I will be your God, and you will be my people. And the people say, yeah. But it's always God coming to make the covenant. God obligating himself. Here in chapter 15 of Genesis, the Lord tells Abraham actually to split animals down the middle. Sort of a weird ceremony. But as you as you read it, you, what you'll find is in the evening, God himself walks down through those split animals. He's really saying, may this happen to me if I break the covenant. You can kill me. Again, he's talking obviously in hum, human terms to help us understand. But may I die if I go against what I've promised to you. That's the nature of the covenant. And friends, it really does come down to the fact that you and I today can have a sense of assurance that one day we will be saved because of God's covenant. Because God has made a promise through his son, Jesus Christ. And in fact, it is called the new covenant. When you, when you come in just a few minutes to this communion table and you receive the outward signs, the bread, speaking of the very flesh of Christ, the wine, speaking of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, these are evidences of God's covenant with you through Jesus Christ. And what you are saying is, by faith, I mean, just taking the communion itself is not making it happen. But in the communion, by faith, I reaffirm, not I'm going to do my part, so you'll do your part, God, but you are simply reaffirming, Lord, I, I accept your gift of the covenant of grace. The promise you have made to me to be my Savior, to be my God. And I trust that's your heart. I trust you're saying that that really is what I want to do. I want, I want to publicly affirm I have no hope in life or in death. I have no hope in this life or in the next life apart from what God has done for me in his wonderful gift of rescue, of redemption through Jesus Christ. One other comment, and then I want to close, but it's very important to point out. As you study the covenant, one of the characteristics that this was a very um, significant thing for me in my own journey, but I kept noticing as I became more and more aware of this, that whenever God speaks of his covenant, he's always saying, I'm doing this for you and for your children and for their children after them. Again, because we're so self-centered, it's sort of Jesus and me. And what you need to see is that's not the way God works. God is so gracious. He says, I love you. And because you're in the covenant, so are your children, and so are their children. And in fact, when uh, 
we baptize our children. That's really our conviction, not that we know we're making them Christians. We're simply claiming the covenant that God who said he would be my God also said he'd be the God of my children. And just as circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, baptism represents the same truth in the New Testament. Well, I'm not, my purpose is not to get off onto that, but I, I do want you to appreciate, and I say this to Baptist friends as well as Presbyterian friends or whatever your tradition, uh, God is a, a gracious, gracious God who loves us with unspeakable love, that he would actually commit himself to us. The pain of his own death is really the picture. And in fact, that's exactly what happened, wasn't it? He gave his own son to shed his blood. That's the sealing of the covenant. Not the blood of animals, but the blood of, the blood of God's own son. And so in his name, we come now, claiming this covenant. It was initiated through our father Abraham. Let's pray. Father, uh, here we are. But 4,000 years away from the time when you came to Abraham and called him and entered into covenant with him and said to him, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we acknowledge this morning that that blessing has come to us, even now, 4,000 years later, through Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But, oh, Lord, how unworthy we are. And so we're not going to claim now that we are somehow better, good enough, worthy, deserving. We humbly claim We don't understand it, Lord, but we believe that you have extended to us your covenant of grace, and we embrace it by faith. Meet with us now, we pray, in this sacred meal, as we reaffirm our trust in your covenant of mercy and grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.